So, Lisa, I was supposed to be lounging and watching Project Runway and doing lots of things that are not work-related, and I made the big mistake of opening up LinkedIn, and one of the first articles I saw was around generations and what's going to happen next with this great resignation that's been going on and how it directly affects DEI. I think we've got lots of stuff to kind of think about there because they're right. You know, there's a great resignation going on, but there's lots of other stuff that that's kind of initiating in every marketplace. I I don't think any marketplace is exempt. I don't think any industry is exempt, but yeah, we got a lot Mm. to think about here. Yeah, I've definitely heard of the great resignation. I mean, it's been all over the news and people speculating about why and what the effect is going to be, but I haven't heard anything in the context of DEI. So I will be curious to hear what you read about. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingerfield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, we know that Anthony Klotz has kind of uh, given us this kind of buzzword of great resignation. He's a professor down at Texas A&M and you know, I appreciate that language because the great resignation, you know, seems to be kind of the converse of what we thought was going to happen at the beginning of a pandemic. You know, people were kind of hesitant and concerned about whether they would have a job at all. And uh, now they've called it, I think it was the um, the resignation tsunami or something to that effect, where literally people are leaving in droves and not looking back. And I can't necessarily blame them. I might even be considered as part of that uh, population of folks right. that are yeah. moving on. But, you know, I think it's something to really think about whether it's a, a threat to uh, diversifying organizations or if it can be a, a benefit, an opportunity, a, a gap that we can fill. Yeah. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. I mean, I think a lot of people want to blame um unemployment benefits on the reason why folks are leaving, but that's not actually what the data is showing. And the Harvard Business Review had a piece that identified that the vast majority of people that are leaving their positions are mid-career professionals. So we're not actually necessarily talking about entry-level folks, service-level folks. I mean, healthcare obviously has had a massive exodus and that seems pretty self-explanatory. But um, the other piece is, you know, I think the pandemic brought into view for so many people, you know, what are they doing um, with their professional life, with their career? And do they want to, you know, work their asses off for, you know, minimum wage, which it barely gets them to the poverty line. And so really having kind of an opportunity to think about where my values at. And from what I understand, Shauna, and from what you've been telling me is when we think about values for Generation Z, and so they're the folks that were born between 97 and 2012, so a big bulk of the workforce, they're very um, committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace to the point where they'll actually turn down positions uh, at companies that do not have an explicit stand on, on those um, pieces. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think it's, 
it's interesting to think about both ends of that because, you know, we, we like to get really, really messy when it comes to identity and how intersections play out in lived experiences. So, you know, yes, a hundred percent, you have those folks that are not willing to work, uh, works in ways that don't reflect what they should receive in return. Now, I'm not saying people don't want to work. They do want to work, but when you're working 50, 60, 70 hour days, you don't see your family as much. You're still not able to provide for them at the level that you want. Those folks are saying, I deserve better. And so I, I think that's an important point on that end of the socioeconomic spectrum. But then, you know, to be quite candid, and Lisa, you know a ton of my story, but, you know, I was on the opposite end of that, where I was in an ideal job and I was making ideal money for my industry. And the thing that was really being sacrificed was time to do anything else but right. work, you right. know, commute and all of that. And so many of us resigned for similar reasons that we did not want to be part of this rat race because COVID kind of proved to us that there doesn't need to be a rat race at all, um, that we can re-envision what this normal looks like. Um, but then too, now industries have this gaping hole here where people are leaving or not being drawn to their organization. And, you know, I think it's a, a both and situation where they're possibly losing the representation they have in their organizations, but they also have the opportunity to attract more representation in their staff. The, the big key piece is, can they keep them? Right. If they're lucky enough to get them there, can they keep them? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that's where I'm really concerned, especially when we connect with Gen Zers. I'm a Gen Xer, um, but Gen Zers, uh, this is going to be a little different. So it sounds like Generation Z is... Um, the most diverse generation thus far, which, you know, isn't surprising. We have the results of the U.S. census that came out and we're seeing that there's a significant um, increase in non-white folks. And a lot of those people fall into the Generation Z category. And so I presumably then if you're growing up, um, in an environment that's much more diverse than, you know, generations before you, your expectation is that that same diversity in terms of race, gender, economic status, ability is going to be reflected in the workplaces and you are likely going to have that as a value. So then you're looking at these corporations mm -hmm. um, for positions whether it's your first position or you're looking to transition and get promoted and you're not seeing um, that diversity reflected in the organization or you're not seeing that organization really um, follow through on their words about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it makes sense to me why someone with that value set would say, well, I'm not going to work for you then or I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so, you know, we talk a lot about uh, voting with your your money on this podcast, but now, you know, when it comes to the workforce, voting with your feet and leaving and what does that mean? And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be done here because Lisa, we start now getting into, I, I had this little bit of an epiphany this week as I was talking to someone in their organization and the challenge was the CEO of the organization articulated <laughs> a priority of DEI and representation within the organization and increased sense of belonging. And if you caught me a week ago, I would have said it's performative and walk off and I just wouldn't even entertain the thought anymore. 
I'm wondering now if there's this additional layer of performativity when it comes to this work, because what if you are, which is most people, you profess that DEI is your priority, but you don't have the skill sets to lead an entire organization to do this work. You may not even have done the introspection to do this work. And so therefore, by default, even with great intentions, you're performative because you're saying one thing and your organization is doing something different, which then sets them up for failure, which then sets them up for this Gen Z who is not interested in working for them. And, you know, the the very thing that senior leaders are expressing are the priority of the organization. They're working against it at the very same time. So they're building up with one hand and tearing down with the other because they're not willing to entertain it both on a personal and a professional level. Right, and then right. Gen Zers walk away. Huh. I think it's something to it. I, yeah. I, it's sick. It's secular. It, I, it just, it keeps going yeah. around and around. And I, I don't know how to stop that spin cycle there. So thinking about the great resignation as an opportunity for more diverse hiring and as a means to encourage um, more diverse hiring, a CEO or, you know, a high, a C-suite person is articulating a message of DEI, but there's not really any substance behind it. So like you said, they're elevating and pulling themselves down at the same time. So they're not actually realizing that their kind of flimsy um, acknowledgement of the relevance of DEI as a tool to hire more diverse people is actually pushing diverse people away. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Right. Okay. And they're and they're working against themselves and they don't even realize they're working against themselves. That's, that's really that's interesting. where that's where, you know, kind of the the ignorance of this comes in. And, you know, this is with a couple of different uh, CEOs and industry leaders that I've talked to over the last week, if not two weeks, and they're in endurance sport and they are saying the right things, but it's a, you know, let's touch it with the 10 foot pole type of thing, not because they don't necessarily want to, but because they don't even know that they need the capabilities to be self-reflective to uh, what we call reflexivity in our, in our uh, research, but they, they have no point of contact with themselves as far as where they land with DEI and where anyone else does. And so they've built them or, or kind of cornered themselves where, no, your organization will never it will never get to where it needs to be without that type of self-reflection at the top and throughout. Right, right. And Gen Zers, um, and I would dare to say Gen Z, those uh, younger generations, at least for me, I'm 43, those younger generations are more used to blurring that line of self-reflection and bringing their whole selves into work. And so when they come into an environment that doesn't seem to be accepting of bringing their whole selves to work, they're like, bye, I'm out. Mm. There's no need Mm. of me being here because I'm not going to sacrifice who I am in order to work for you. Right. Right. Not doing that. Yeah. And, and probably with the pandemic, right, there's been an elevated need for connection with so much remote work, or in, even if you're in work, right, um, physically, there's that lack of kind of physical touch or connection. So you're spread out, you're not really engaging with folks. Um, and so my, my assumption, therefore, is cult, um, connection and belonging has kind of become very, very important to people. And like you just said, if I'm going to a workplace and I don't see myself reflected there, I don't feel like the culture, the work culture respects me and I don't feel like I belong. I'm going to turn on my heels and go somewhere else, even if you're articulating this DEI message. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because people are savvy enough to look at both words and actions at the very same time, you know, and um, for me, I'm just kind of thinking through, especially in endurance sport, you know, what are, what are folks articulating? What are they doing? And what are they not articulating? So uh, let me go down this rabbit trail for a minute, Lisa, and then we'll come back, you know, just thinking about, for example, there's this kind of spectrum of you can say too little and you may also say too much. So, you know, when it comes to corporate social responsibility, not saying anything about Black Lives Matter or not saying anything about um, our Asian siblings in Georgia that were murdered, for example, not saying anything about transgender law and how it's affecting people's real lives, especially youth, you know, not saying anything is problematic. But then I think there's something to be said when you do make a mistake you make a statement, but that statement can be so clear that you don't have to keep arguing your point. You said what you said, and that's it. Um, I remember, I'll have to look around and find that ad that I saw. This was many months ago where um, there was an ad from a, a organization that they bought like a full page ad in a newspaper, newspaper. And in the middle, it said, um, it said, Black Lives Matter. We will no longer argue or entertain arguments on this point. And they left it right there. And then, of course, they showed another you know, page on their website with all the activities they were doing to support Black Lives Matter movement, uh, promotion of, of African-Americans in their organization, all of that. And so I think there's kind of this sweet spot that we need to find in regards to, yes, corporate social responsibility needs to happen. If someone looks at your organization and doesn't know what you stand for, you're in trouble. Um, especially when it comes to hiring, uh, but also too not getting yourself into this spin of I have to articulate and rearticulate myself so much that my message is now filtered, watered down, and pointless. Right. So you know how do we get to that sweet spot in ways yeah. that attract more representation to be hired? That's that's the key. Yeah, that um, makes me think about you know when white people or men you know f up in some way and then they just apologize profusely over and over and over again. Right, and they really right. only need to apologize once and then change their behavior. And so it's this, obviously it's the guilt. So I, I think probably in the case of white and or male CEOs who keep rearticulating that message of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion importance in their organization, it's probably born of this, this guilt that I just need to keep saying it. Like if I, if I say it enough times, it will be real. <laughs> You know, right, right. If I say it enough times, it'll be real. And I will convince myself that I believe myself. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And so that's just such an interesting connection with um, this great resignation and that you're potentially losing um, folks of color, women. Well, we know women for sure. Um, folks with disabilities because your organization isn't going far enough. And then in an attempt to go far right. enough, you cease to attract folks of color, women, people with disabilities, because it just feels um, disingenuous. That's right. That's right. And it, it it brings home the point of who are you trying to convince, you know, you yourself right. or the rest of us, you know, yeah. who are you trying to convince here, you know? And so, you know, I, I do think there's some opportunities with the great resignation and the great awakening. I just think there needs to be, you know, some alterations in this work. And I think, it can directly apply to endurance sport because, you know, for us, we are a very spread out community. You know, we are all yeah, over the place. Yeah. We travel to get to events and races and so forth. Um, 
I wish I had screenshot this particular post, but it was one post where the CEO posted on LinkedIn and said, I took a poll of how my folks felt post COVID and a small percentage of folks wanted to return back to their office, if you will. Another percentage of folks wanted to have a hybrid type of schedule where they have maybe a couple days in the office a week. And then there was another group that said, I don't care if I ever return back to a physical office. And instead of the usual argument that I've heard about, let's just create equality, the simple response was equity. Do what you want to do. Lisa, if you want to yeah, stay home yeah. all the time, then do that. Shauna, if you want to come home, come come to the office every Tuesday and Thursday because that works for you, then do that. And the amount of productivity that will go up, because I I keep arguing the point that we keep creating policy, especially post-COVID, policies that drive people to resign because those policies are built upon people who do not have the work ethic that you're looking for. Right. So when people say, oh, well, what if they're not doing their work at home? Well, there were folks that were at work and not doing their work at work. So the bad apple is going to be a bad apple wherever, right? So the good apples, I I just feel like the policies should be written for the good apples because the bad apples will show themselves. So, you know, so that's why I'm at this conundrum of how do we kind of encourage and coax folks folks to a place where they have an opportunity to redesign what work looks like, which then allows you to redesign who you're working with, which then allows you to redesign how happy they are uh, in their sense of belonging. And then, you know, we're Mm -hmm. we're in a a new normal. We're in a new Mm -hmm. normal at that point, hopefully, hopefully, but that's my ideal. Yeah. And I think that that speaks directly to inclusion. I think um, over, you know, over the, over time, the word diversity has in many ways lost meaning and really, I think, um, yes, yes. Con- connects largely to numerical diversity, right? Do I have enough people who look different, essentially, um, in my organization? But the inclusion piece that move from diversity to inclusion is really thinking about the cultural environment and the ways in which we're implementing equitable practices that create inclusion and belonging. And so your position there that just let everyone do whatever they need to do in terms of their work schedule is equitable um, and actually will create a different set of conditions that might attract a more diverse workforce, right? Because if you conceptualize work in a particular way in office, eight to five, then you are cutting off a good number of people who might be really good at that job, but needed more workday flexibility. And so I don't think a lot of people think about DEI work in that context, right? Um, In the context of workday flexibility, benefits that are available, uh, PTO, sick leave, um, you know, pooling people's sick leave. So if someone gets really ill, they they can, you know, use other people's vacation sick, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I think that is lost. And so I don't know whether this great resignation will perhaps precipitate some more thoughtful analysis about how um, inclusion can be inclusion is more than just, you know, 40% people of color, 40% women. That's right. That's in right. Your workplace. That's right. Absolutely. Well, and you know, that inclusion, I mean, you know, for, for me, I will speak for me and I'm imagining that other folks with comparable responsibilities feel similarly. 
there are so many systems that work against the traditional workday system. So for example, when my oldest son, Trey, started public school, I was just, I, I had my curious face on because I'm thinking to myself, let's get this straight. Even if I worked next door <laughs> to his elementary school, um, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating there, but even if I worked next door to my son's elementary school, the school day didn't start until 8.55. The school day was over at 2.15, 2.55. I know of no one's full workday that accommodates a regular school system day. And so, no, you don't want to have to fight with a supervisor in order to do something as simple as drop your kids off and pick them up for school. Or that then forces you into a socioeconomic issue where you can't be there at 855, you can't be there at 215, 255 to pick them up. So then you have to pay for before care and after care, which barely covers the amount of time for you to get to work get off, get them. And I could go on and on up in regards to those type right. of issues. And so right. when the systems all play against each other to make things even more oppressive, that's when people just opt out because they don't want the struggle of doing basic things. You know, I don't want the yeah. struggle of having to fill out three forms to ask for 30 minutes off to see my kid get an award in the middle of the day at school. Right. Right. They Ridiculous. just resign. Yeah, they just resign. And so and and that's not to say that it's all about people with kids. I'm just saying with anyone, if someone I, I remember having an administrative assistant where her husband um, had dialysis and it had to be on a schedule and it was always on Thursday at 115. She should not have to take a full day work day off in order to get him where he needs to go and come back for a 45 minute procedure should not have to do that. So why couldn't she work from home during Thursday, every Thursday? She still was excited about work. She actually would work earlier and work later on those days. She loved what she did, but the headache of the red tape is so problematic because the systems just simply don't play nicely together at all. Well, yeah. And those systems were created for men, right? Like the, and it's just hung over. So any, That's the whole it. eight That's to five, it. nine to five. Um, and the misalignment with the school example is absolutely because men don't do that. And so, but, and so as the workforce has diversified, the work, what is considered appropriate and professional in the workplace has not shifted at the same pace as the workforce shifting. Right. Yes, so then we get, yes. like then, then women are more likely to be considered unprofessional or lazy or incompetent because they're always quote unquote leaving to do stuff. Right. Right. Um, right, right. You know, and so, and then when men do that, they tend to get more applauded because they're a great dad, but that's a whole other conversation. So, Oh yes. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. So those pieces, so looking beyond, um, the numerical diversity to some of those other pieces, I think is absolutely going to be part and parcel of if you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a fundamental um, commitment of your business, then that's the kind of thing that you can change. That's low hanging fruit, quite honestly. Easy peasy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's easy. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and I think too, you know, you're right that, you know, a newer generation, a younger generation is going to be pushing for that rather than um, I would suggest maybe I'm speaking too broadly, but I do think that 
older generations that are more used to the male dominated systems that they've had to endure have been suffering in silence. And now we've met a generation that's like, you've met the wrong generation. We're not putting up with that crap. Change it or we leave or we work for ourselves. And so that's when you see this big proliferation of, you know, entrepreneurship. You know, we can go there with that entrepreneurship and other ways to do what they do well on their own terms. So when I see these increases in entrepreneurship or consulting or whatever folks are doing independently, I know why they want to work and they love what they do, but they do not want it to be in the system. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, and, and not to say that they don't want to, you know, connect, they do deeply want to connect with other folks, but, you know, when you created it in a way that prints you for being there with your loved ones, your self-care, all these other things that matter, that literally keep us alive, people ain't doing it anymore. They're not going to do it. They're not interested in making those types of sacrifices. Yeah, um, it's funny, the self-care thing you mentioned, because, um, you know, social work is a very um, self-care oriented profession and constantly, you know, the message that is drummed into social workers is you've got to, you've got to have self-care, you've got to make time for self-care, 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 but it has become hollow (laughs) in much the same way that a CEO talking about DEI over and over again because the system hasn't changed enough to actually enable social workers to engage in meaningful self-care, right? Because they still got to be at work eight to five and they're still maybe working 55 hours a week and they're still only earning $42,000 a year or whatever, you know, with these huge debts in education. And so it just becomes, uh, it becomes meaningless and it's it's a joke um, in some cases, right? And that some, some supervisors and some systems are much better at it, but on the whole, um, I, I don't see that. And then, um, you know, the, the low pay thing, right. And I think endurance sports really needs to pay attention to this because I don't think endurance sport as an industry is a particularly, um, uh, effective payer, right? Like you think about, um, it relies heavily mm, on volunteers, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of entry-level positions pay poorly or, you know, you have really tough hours, like getting to the race at 4am to help set up and you're getting paid like eight bucks an hour or something, if that. And so I think that that's also something that endurance sport needs to really think about is, you know, paying people a living wage. And if you don't do that, plus your culture, you are going to just bleed stuff, right? You're not going to be able to keep people. Oh, well, Lisa, I know this is a complete, (laughs) another podcast entirely, but I'm just going to mention it here. We can circle back to it later, Um, is that a lot of folks, especially organizations, don't consider the expense of turnover, the literal expense of turnover, especially if you hire in ways where you do it right. So, you know, when someone leaves, you know, then you have to once again start the search process. You have to advertise. Hopefully you have a search committee. That search committee who's getting paid as well, the amount of hours they have to contribute to the search itself, which is money. Once again, searching for folks is expensive. It's extremely expensive. And so, you know, in in time and money. And so, you know, given that, I think that's another thing to safeguard against. And I feel strongly that organizations, especially in endurance sport, especially when we're in sport that is used to making a statement for various issues and concerns for generations. I mean, 
Look at every single protest that happened at any Olympics. I mean, we could go down the list of how sport has always intersected with social responsibility. Given that, it's like, come on, we we can't continue to allow endurance sport not to stand up for something because it's we're going to pay one way Mm -hmm. or another. We're going to pay either now or later. We're going to pay for it. Right. Yeah. Okay, I think that's a great place to wrap up the conversation and shift into our segment, Hell Yeah, Hell Nah. So, Hell Yeah. Hell Nah. All right, what do you have, Shauna? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I laugh every time we get to this uh, part of the podcast because it's new, yet it's still funny. Um, But, you know, we need to think about a few things that have happened in Hell Yeah or Hell Nah. Hell yeah, um, one of my favorites um, is NASCAR. And I know some people even debate whether NASCAR is a sport or not. (laughs) I believe it is. Um, I grew up around NASCAR and Martinsville Speedway, Richmond Speedway, et cetera. So I I feel strongly that it is a sport. Um, But one of the things I really want to appreciate about NASCAR is that they really have had an opportunity to think through who they are, what they've, uh, what they want to accomplish when it comes to diversity and, and not just giving lip service. So previously NASCAR didn't have too many drivers. They did have some programs to diversify driving, but then they found an entree for um, pit crews that were primarily people of color, but that was a great way to diversify NASCAR because we know that pit crews are part of the competitiveness of any car team. You need to get that pit stop done in 12 seconds or less. If not, the pit crew can literally lose the entire race for a car that may be in the lead or on the pole. And so given that, what I thought was really profound was that uh, last year, even going two and two through and hopefully beyond the pandemic, this was the first year that NASCAR received Sports League of the Year. Usually uh, Sports Business Journal gives it to um, a league like the NBA or MLB, et cetera. This is the first time that NASCAR ever got it. And this is on the back end of banning Confederate flags from all of the venues and events that they own and doing that in the face of adversity. And it wasn't just about Bubba Wallace driving and so forth. It was more so about how can we continue to think more about the future of our sport? And one of the things, Lisa, that I really want to point out in this, because a lot of people think they can do diversity without resistance, NASCAR did this in the face of resistance. There were lots of folks that were ticked off that their Confederate flags and their quote unquote history um, was being removed from the sport. But yes, we know that season ticket holders are going to be like, here, take these back. I want my money back, et cetera. Let's not act like that wasn't going to happen. But the amount of people that bought season tickets and the amount of people that started showing up that represented more identity groups started to increase. And so, yeah, there might've been a loss in some places, but there's been a great gain in other places. So kudos Mm -hmm. to NASCAR for being a leader, for taking that Confederate Confederate flag down because it was very painful and hurtful to a lot of people. And thank you for being visionary and not just thinking about who your fans are now, but all of your fans and who your fans should be and how comfortable they are Mm -hmm. coming to your events Mm -hmm. and your venues. So kudos to NASCAR. You did it. Great job. 
Okay, well, I would not have guessed that NASCAR would have made the hell yeah section, but yay. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so on to our hell not. So this one is um, a recent issue. So many of you may have been following the anti-trans laws that have been passing across the country. And on Ooh, yeah. October 25th, uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas signed an anti-trans bill into law. It begins January 18th, 2022, and it requires that public school children competing in interscholastic competition have to play on teams that match their sex assigned at birth. So the sex that is written on their uh, birth certificate. And the argument for why this is in place is to protect girls' sport and to make up for historical discrimination um, of girls in sport. Um, so it's a pretty severe law and there were a, there was a lot of pushback against it, but of course, Texas being Texas, it passed. Um, I find right. the argument right. um, that it's to protect, uh, you know, to make up for or rectify historical discrimination against girls in sport to be somewhat hollow because that same argument could be used um, in terms of kind of the legacy of slavery and racial oppression and having affirmative action as one example. But of course, Texas and many other states are anti-affirmative action because they say that it is um, discriminatory against white people. So, you know, you use the argument mm -hmm. that you want ultimately to get what mm -hmm. you need. So really, this isn't about um, protecting girls because Texas doesn't give a crap about girls, particularly those who can right. uh, become pregnant <laughs> and want an right. abortion because that's now banned. So right. it's right. a self-serving argument that is inconsistently applied. And this law is really just transphobic and um, maintains uh, a traditional gender hierarchy and patriarchy. I mean, that's what it's about. Oh, my goodness. It's like we take one step forward and then certain areas of the country just keep walking backwards. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a definite hell no. Nah. I mean, look, Lisa, you're right. I think we come up with, you know, five hell nahs for every hell yeah we discuss. Yes. Yeah, it does feel oh that way. God. Exactly. So, but folks, if you hear of hell yes or hell nahs that you want to share with us and you want to hear our uh, brief commentary on the podcast, please do that. Send it over to us. You know how to reach us um, on our Facebook, on our Instagram. We're also on LinkedIn as well. Reach out to us in any of those ways and we'd be happy to feature them there. Um, but Lisa, I am really excited about what's coming up uh, this coming weekend. Outspoken happens, right? This coming yep. weekend. Yep. And we will be there with uh, exciting news and information and content. So I'm, I'm very excited about Outspoken. Even with it being virtual, I would love to just hug all of y'all, but I realize that we have to stay safe for a little while longer, um, but looking forward to it. Yep. And you can still register for Outspoken because it is virtual. We'll have that registration open all the way up until and during the event. If you can't make it on the 12th, 13th and 14th, if you register for a virtual ticket, you will have access to all of the recorded sessions. So no excuses. Um, exactly. You can, we've got great content. As uh, Shauna said, she'll be there. We also have Katie Safaris as a keynote speaker. Khadijah Diggs is a keynote speaker. Sika Henry is a keynote speaker. Um, we have Ooh. Dr. Nicole Lavoie from the Tucker Center, and she's talking about women in coaching, not coaching women, the uh, number of women in coaching and how we can increase that in endurance sports. So I'm very excited um, about this weekend.
Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcasts and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>